Section 7 of Uther and Egrain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Harper. Uther and Egrain by Warwick Deeping. Book 1, Chapter 7. Egrain's thoughts were to music when she went to bed that night. Peleus's eyes stayed with her, darkly, sadly. His tragic face seemed to look out of the night, like the face of one dead. And he more than liked her. She felt sure of that, even if she did not dream of kinder things sprung from long looks and quiet sighings. She sat on her bed and smiled the whole strange day over to herself again. She had the man before her in all his looks and poses. How he sat his horse, the habit he had of looking deeply into nothingness, his strength and quiet knightliness, and above all his devout soul. He seemed to please her at every point in a way that set her thrilling within herself with a delicious wonder. Last, she thought of the weird twilight under the grand old tree, rare climax to a day of deeds and memories. She felt her heart leap as she remembered the great wistful look that had shone out on her from Peleus's eyes. The manor house seemed still as the night itself. Morgan LeBlanche had taken herself to a couch in the triclinium, choosing it rather than one of the cubicles leading from the atrium. Galerius was on guard, pacing the mirror's bank, while his comrades slept in the kitchen. Peleus, armed, with sword and shield beside him, had quartered himself on cushions in the great porch, with the doors open. It was about ten o'clock. Egrain, full of sweet broodings, crept into bed and settled herself for sleep. The night was wonderfully peaceful. The window of the room was overgrown with a tangle of roses, the flowers seeming to mellow the air as it came softly in, and there was a faint shimmer into the shadows that hinted at moonlight. Egrain lay long awake, with her eyes on the few stars that peeped through between the jams. There was too much in her heart to let sleep in for the while, and her thoughts were a dance within her brain like wild, fleet-footed things. As she lay in a happy fever of thought, her face grew hot upon the pillow, and her tumbled hair was like a lustrous lava flow over the bed. In course, despite her tossing, she fell into a shallow, fitful sleep that verged between wakefulness and dreams. It was well past midnight when she started, wide awake, with the half-dreamt memory of some eerie sound in her ears. She sat up in bed and listened, shivering. There were footfalls, swift and light, on the pavement of the atrium. From somewhere came a gruff voice, speaking tersely and in bated tones. Next, there was something that sounded like a groan, and then silence. Egrain crept out of bed, hurried on her habit, opened the door gently, and looked out. Moonlight streamed in through the square aperture in the roof of the hall, but all else lay in darkness. The porch gates were ajar, with a band of light slanting through upon the tiles. Eager, tremulous, she fancied as she stood that she heard the beat of oars. Then the low, groaning cough that she had heard before thrilled her into action like a trumpet cry. She was across the court in a second and into the darkened porch. The doors swung back to her hands, and the night streamed in. Clear before her, lit with a silver emphasis, lay the water, and on it she saw the dark outline of the barge, moving with foaming oars towards the further bank. For the moment her heart seemed to halt within her. Peleus! she cried. Peleus! 
A stifled sound answered her from a dark corner of the porch. With a sudden frost in her bosom, she saw a black rill trickling over the tiles in the moonlight, even touching her feet. Great fear came upon her, but left her power to think. In the triclinium she had seen a lamp, with tinder, steel, and flint in a tray beside it, and in her fear she ran thither, tore her fingers in her haste with stone and steel, but had the lamp lit with such speed as she had never learnt at Avangel. Then she went back trembling into the porch. The knight Peleus lay in the corner, half propped against the wall. His head was bowed down upon his chest, and he had both hands clasped upon the neckband of his tunic. Blood was trickling from his mouth, and he seemed to be hardly breathing, while under the left armpit shone the silver hilt of the knife that had been thrust there by Galerius's hand. To the thought of the girl it seemed as if the man were in his death agony. The utter realism of the moment drove all fear from her. She set the lamp on the tiles, and kneeling by Peleus, pulled the knife slowly from his side. A gush of blood followed. She strove to staunch it with a corner of her gown. The man was quite unconscious, and never heeded her though he was still breathing jerkily and feebly, with a rattling strider in his throat. She lifted his head and rested it upon her shoulder, while she knelt and pressed her hand over the wound, dreading to see him die each moment. For an hour she knelt, cold and almost bare-kneed, on the stone floor, holding the man to her, watching his breathing with a tense fear, pressing upon the wound as though ethereal life would ebb and mock her fingers. Little by little she felt the warm flow cease, felt her fingers stiffened at their task, while the minutes dragged like eons and the lamp flickered low in the night. At last she knew that the issue was stayed, and that Peleus bled no more. Gradually, fearfully, lest life should fall away like a poised wand, she laid the man down and again watched with her hand over the stricken side. He was breathing more noticeably now with less of the look of death about him. Encouraged thus, she dared to meditate leaving him to find wine and sheets to cover him there. When she essayed to move, she found her habit clotted to the wound where she had held it. It took her minutes to cut the cloth through with the knife that had stabbed Peleus, for she was palsied lest the wound should break again and lose her, her love's labor. Free at last, she fled into her room, tore the clothes in which she had lain from the bed, and carried them trailing into the porch. Then, lamp in hand, she spoiled the triclinium of rugs and cushions, and found there the chalice of wine that Morgan had sipped from. Laden, she struggled back across the hall, fearing all the while to find the man parted. No such foul fortune, however. He was breathing better and better. Then she set to to make a bed. She spread cushions and rugs, and then, so slowly, so gently, that she seemed hardly to move, she had the man laid upon the couch with two cushions under his head. Next she covered him with the clothes taken from her own bed. Thus much completed without mishap, she washed his lips and face with water taken from the pool, trickled some wine down his throat, and set the doors wide to watch for dawn. So pressed had she been by the man's peril, that even the right of thought had been denied her, now, seated by the lamp, she began to sift matters as well as her meager knowledge would suffer, keeping constant watch on wounded Peleus the while. She knew that Morgan and her men were gone in the barge, but as to who gave Peleus his wound, she could come to no clear understanding in her heart. There must have been some deep feud for such a stroke, though she could find no reason for the deed. Still, she could believe anything of that chit, Morgan Leblanche, and there the riddle rested for a season. 
Before long, she saw the summer dawn stealing silently and mysteriously into the east. The face of the sky grew gray with waking light, and the hold of the moon and night relaxed on wood and meadow. Then the birds began in the garden, till she thought their shrill piping must wake Peleus from his swoon, so blithe and lusty were they. The east was forging day fast in its furnace of gold. The glare touched the clouds and rolled them into wreaths of amber fire. A sigh from the couch brought her to her feet like magic. She went and knelt by the bed in quite a tumult of expectation. Peleus's hands were groping feebly over the coverlet, like weak, blind things. Igraine caught them in hers, thrilled as they closed upon her fingers, and, bending low, she waited with her lips almost on the man's, her hair on his forehead, her eyes fixed on his closed lids. All her soul seemed to droop above him like a lily over a grave. Presently he sighed again, stirred, and opened his eyes full on Igraine's, as she knelt and mingled her breath with his. "'Pelias,' she whispered. "'Pelias.' He looked at her for a moment with a dazed stare that dawned into a smile that made her long to sing. "'It is Egraine,' she said. Pelias caught a deep breath and groaned as his stricken side twinged to the quick. Egraine put two fingers on his lips. "'Lie still,' she said. "'Lie still if you love earth. You must not speak. No, not one little word.' I must have you quiet as a child, Peleus. You have been so near death. She felt the man's hand answer hers. He did not speak or move, but lay and looked at her as a little child in a cradle looks at its mother, or as a dog eyes his master. Egraine put his hands gently down upon the coverlet and smiled at him. Lie so, Peleus, she said. Be very quiet, for I am to leave you for a minute and no more. You must not move a finger, or I shall scold. She beamed at him, started up, and ran straight to the chapel, her heart a whimper with a joy that was not mute. She went full length on the altar steps with her face turned to the cross above, the cross whose golden arms were aglow with the sun through the eastern window. In her mood, the white Christ's face seemed to smile on her with equal joy. She learnt more in that moment than Avangel had taught her in a year. Hardly five minutes had passed before she was with Peleus again, bearing fruit and olives, bread and oil. She made a sweet dish of bread and berries with some wine in it for his heart's sake, and then knelt at his side to feed him. She would not let him lift a finger, but served him herself with silver spoon and platter, smiling to give him courage as he obeyed her like a babe. It seemed very pitiful to her that so much strength and manliness should have been smitten so low in one brief night. Nonetheless, the man's feebleness brought her more joy than ever his courage had done, and his peril had discovered clear wells of ruth in her that might have been months hidden but for the hand of Galerius. When Peleus had finished the bread and fruit, she gave him more wine, and then set to to bathe his hands and face with scented water taken from the tablinum. Peleus's eyes, with deep shadows under them now, watched her all the while with a kind of wondering calm. The sunlight flooded in and lit her hair like red gold, and made her neck to shine like alabaster. Meeting his look, she reddened, and turned to hide her face for a moment, that he might not see all that was writ there in letters of flame. "'Now you must sleep, Peleus,' she said, crossing his hands upon the quilt. He shook his head feebly. 
I'm going to leave you, she persisted, so you must not flout me, Peleus. I shall be here, ready, when you wake. She smiled at him and closed his lids gently with her fingertips. Sleep, she said, brushing her hand softly over his forehead, for sleep will give you strength again. You may need it. She left him there, and taking bread and olives with her, she closed the porch gates to shade him, and went herself into the garden. After a meal under the old cedar, she went down to the water's edge and washed her feet from the stains of Peleus's blood, and bathed her hands and face. She saw the barge amid the reeds and rushes on the farther bank. There was no sign of life in the meadows, and the woods were deep with peace. Then she remembered Peleus's horse. Going to the stable behind the manor, she found the beast stalled there, though Morgan's horses had been taken by the men in the barge. Egrain took hay from the rack, gave him a measure of oats in his manger, and watered him with water from the mirror. Then she stood and combed his mane with her fingers as he fed. Some of the poppies she had plaited there were dead and drooping in the black hair. She thought as she unbound the withered things how nearly Peleus's life had withered with theirs. She was very happy in her heart, and she sang softly the low, tender songs women love when their thoughts are maying. Egrain passed the whole morning in the garden, going every now and again to the porch to open the doors gently and peep in upon the sleeper. She gathered a basket of fruit and a lapful of flowers. About noon she went in, and bringing jars from the triclinium, she filled them with water and garnished them with flowers. These jars she set in array about Peleus's bed, one of tiger lilies and one of white lilies, a bowl of roses at his head, a jar of hollyhocks and one of thyme, and fragrant herbs at the foot. Moreover, she strewed the coverlet with pansies and scattered rose leaves on his pillow. Then she went to the chapel to pray a while before sitting down to watch beside his bed. Peleus woke about an hour after noon had turned. At his first stirring, Egrain was hanging over him like a mother, with her hands on his. Peleus looked up at her, saw the flowers about his bed, and, risking her menaces, spoke his first word. "'Egrain,' he said. She put her face down to his. "'I am much stronger,' he said. "'I can talk now.' "'Perhaps a very little,' she answered with her eyes on his. "'Egrain!' "'Yes, Peleus?' "'You are very wonderful.' "'Peleus!' she said redly. "'I should have died without you, for I was witless and coughing blood.' "'I thought you would die.' she said very softly, with her eyes downcast. I held you in my arms, and, God helping me, staunched the flow from your wound. But tell me, Peleus, who was it stabbed you? The man smiled at her. There I am as ignorant as you, he said. I woke with a fiery twinge in my side, and saw a man running out of the porch in the dark. I struggled to rise. Blood came into my mouth and betwixt coughing and hard breathing I must have fainted. What of the others? Egraine knelt up from stooping over him, and thought. Morgan and her men, she said presently, fled across the mere in the barge just after you had been stabbed. I saw them go in the moonlight. It was your cry that woke me in bed. I came and found you senseless in the corner, and the woman and her rascals making off in the boat. One of the men must have smitten you while you slept. Peleus kept silence for a while, as though he were thinking hard. Show me the knife, he said anon. Egrain had washed away the stains and laid it aside in a corner. 
She held it up now before Peleus's eyes as he lay in bed. He took it from her with trembling hands and handled it, his face darkening. "'This is my own poniard,' he said, "'the poniard I left in the heart of the man in Andresvold. "'Look, girl, look! "'Search and see. "'Mayhaps you may find a cross.' "'Egrain did his bidding and searched the pavement, but found nothing. "'Then she came back to the bed "'and began to turn the cushions up here and there "'and to scan the tiled floor. "'Sure enough, under the foot of the bed, "'she found a small gold cross lying, "'smeared lightly with dried blood.' She took it up and gave it to Peleus. He caught and held it with a terse cry. End of Book 1, Chapter 7 Recording by Rachel Harper